Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. I'm Steve Letarte, STP auto expert and former crew chief. I know what it takes to keep engines performing at their best. STP's latest breakthrough additive, STP Ultra 5-in-1 plus Fuel System Cleaner plus Fuel Stabilizer delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline and helps keep fuel fresh during storage. For over 60 years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products to help engines run better, longer. One bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline. Greetings. Welcome to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. This is a special edition of the podcast. We're looking back on some of our favorite moments from the 57 episodes we did in our first season. We got started nearly a year ago with Kyle Petty, and we finished 2016 with Mojo Nixon. And in between those two colorful personalities, we had a guest roster that included nearly two dozen active NASCAR drivers, three Hall of Famers, two Formula One drivers, and the winningest team owner in Indianapolis 500 history. We also had several behind-the-scenes guests who shed light on myriad topics, such as the logistics of organizing a NASCAR pre-race show, a glimpse inside the production truck of NBC Sports during a NASCAR weekend, uh, and the backroom negotiations that helped create the new charter system. Uh, One of the most alluring things about NASCAR for me has always been that there can be so much happening beyond just what's going on on track. Uh, It's an industry with literally thousands of people who can affect the results each week. So we tried to cover a lot of that ground on the NASCAR and NBC podcast, and I've tried to select some of the best answers to illustrate that, but it was tough to make some of these choices. If you've got a favorite episode or guest uh, who wasn't represented Please know that I almost certainly considered including them, but there was only so much time that we had for this episode. Uh, We technically remain in the offseason for NASCAR, though things will be ramping up shortly. I'm not sure when our next episode will be, but I promise it'll be in January. At the very least, we'll have bi-weekly episodes until the 2017 season begins with Speed Weeks. Then we'll move back into our every Wednesday episode rotation. As always, we appreciate your listening and your support. If you're hearing us via iTunes, please leave a rating or review, or please subscribe or have your friends subscribe. That really helps us out. There are many other options for finding us. There's Audio Boom, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify. Uh, also, check out the rest of the NBC Sports podcasting lineup at any of those places. Conference play is starting to ramp up in the NCAAs, and there's a new college basketball talk podcast out that will break down each of the major conferences during this pivotal time of the season. So be sure to check that out. But for now, let's get started with the best moments 
from 2016 on the NASCAR and NBC podcast. All right, we're going to get started with one of the first episodes to really break through, I feel like, and gain, gain a lot of mainstream traction. Um, this episode did really well in terms of volume with downloads and listens, and it was our conversation with Brad Keselowski, who was so gracious in giving us more than an hour of uh, sit-down time at his house in the Charlotte area on a Tuesday after a Pocono race in which he'd been involved in a little bit of controversy with something Fox analyst Jeff Gordon said about his team that that Brad took umbrage to. That's, of course, nothing new. One of uh, the most appealing parts about Brad Keselowski's personality is that he is so outspoken. But even beyond the fact that he's so outspoken, I think it's that his opinions are so well thought out and they're so intelligent. Uh, This is a guy who thinks big picture all the time. And that was pretty much what we discussed during during this conversation. We, we we covered a lot of ground, touched on a lot of topics, hit on a lot of big picture issues, and I think you'll you'll hear from some of these snippets that um, one thing that's great about Brad is that he he always looks at things in an unconventional, different way, and I think that's what makes him such a great interview. Watching the election news cycle right now has us so jaded because we just automatically assume that the landscape in politics or government or whatever you want to call it is so is just as skewed as it is in motorsports <laughs> and so we watch the news and go well i think i know but i'm pretty sure that if their media landscape runs like our media landscape then this is entirely wrong so you know what i don't know <laughs> and so uh it's it's an interesting dynamic you know listening back to some of the podcasts from last year to to pick out these these snippets uh i felt very remiss in the fact that we only had Jeff Burton on once uh, in our first season. I promise that will be rectified in 2017. We will have him on at least once, hopefully twice, maybe three times. Uh, Listening back to the the podcast we did with him uh, last April, Jeff was terrific. And as a driver, he was always a go-to quote for the media because he, he saw things in that panoramic big picture view, but was able to put it in layman's terms, but still give you um, a, a real uh, direct, sharp way of analyzing things. And I think that comes across in some of these snippets that you'll hear from, from our conversation. He, he has a way, he's always had it. That's, that's why he's, he's an analyst on NBC Sports. That's why we hired him. He's, he's, just, he's great at, at being able to just uh, take complex issues, simplify them, but still uh, add his his take on it, and here's some of what he, he had to say in our podcast. Everybody focuses just on wins because that's what we've been taught. We've been told if you win races, you're in the chase. Points still matter. Mm-hmm. And and it's people are going to make this chase by getting in by points. And if you start adding up all the races and all the positions that Matt and his team have given up, Late in races, it's a lot of positions. It's a lot of points. And Matt and his team, is, they listen, they believe they can win, okay? But they're also smart enough to know that they need to gain points. And they're also, you get to the point, and what, my concern for that team is you get to the point where you have to go to the racetrack and say, we just need to finish 10th. You know, and you tend to, when you're trying to get things back in order, you tend to overcompensate a little bit. Right. Either you try too hard or you settle for a finish that really isn't good enough, or, but for you at that moment, it is. And, and either way, isn't the attitude you want going to the racetrack. You want to go to the racetrack with the right attitude, with the right goal, with the right mindset, 
But when it starts piling up on you, it's it's hard to get lined up. The final NASCAR driver we talked to during the 2016 season was Danica Patrick, and uh, that was in her motorhome at Homestead Miami Speedway, end of a very long year. This isn't the first time I've had a sit-down with her toward the end of the season. Uh, in my previous life as a writer at USA Day Sports, this was actually sort of an annual thing where I would often sit down with her to um, do a postmortem on, on how her year had gone and, and what was next, what was ahead for her. Because at, at the time that I was covering her while working for that newspaper, she was going through some pretty dynamic changes in her career, making the switch from IndyCar uh, from one team to another, and then making the switch from IndyCar to NASCAR, um, and from Xfinity to Sprint uh, to what was the Sprint Cup Series, now full-time. Uh, and I think what's interesting about where Danica is in her career now is that there is no next, really. Um, she's trying to make things work at the NASCAR level, and if this doesn't work out, um, I, I don't know if you'll see her in racing again. She's got some very big projects long-term that she's spoken openly about wanting to pursue. We, we talked about that during the podcast. We also talked about uh, her feelings about how frustrated she was during the 2016 season, which was her fourth full season in cup. She's still looking for that first win. She was very candid about how she felt about all that. So here, here's uh, some of what she had to say, man. I just hope next, next year's fun. Like I just want it to be fun. Cause which means I want it to go better. <laughs> you know, so both Ricky and I both, I'm like, babe, I know you know what I'm talking about. Because he said, you know, they started the year off all right, but they've had to struggle too. And, you know, it's just not much fun. And then he goes and he's like, you know, obviously just doing, running in the top 15 every weekend would just be so much more fun. And then you can work from there. You know, some weekends you hit it and you're going to be, you know, top five, top 10. Some days you miss it. You might be 20th, but it's just, you know, so much more competitive. Lead lap, something on the line every time instead of terrible races where you're out there and things don't go well and, you know, you're on, you're on your own lap because you just sucked that day and nobody, you know, it just it gets so spread out and um, it's just not much fun. So uh, I, I, I do just really, really hope it goes better. Kyle Petty was the first guest that we had on the NASCAR NBC podcast, and that was by design. Uh, I knew he would do a bang-up job. Um, he is one of the most comfortable personalities that you're ever going to interview. That was true when he was a driver. It's, it remains especially true now as a TV analyst. Um, he's always going to give you a different answer, an unconventional answer. Um, he's often going to make you smile, but he's also going to make you look at things in a different way. And uh, so I, I really appreciate him giving us so much of his time for the, that first episode. I felt like it got it off the ground and, and put the podcast going in the right direction. Uh, it was everything I hoped it would be. And uh, as always, Kyle had some had some strong opinions, including um, how those strong opinions at one point maybe had gotten him in trouble with some NASCAR executives. And as always, he, he talked openly about that in, in relation to the driver's council. So here was his take on, on how he got, he grew comfortable with being outspoken in NASCAR after his driving career had ended and his TV career had begun. Outspoken for the sake of outspokenness. No. Mm -hmm. Okay. To just say something. No. Um, I do believe, I do believe that they need to be able to speak and not fear retribution and not fear a backlash from what they say. Um, you know, I, I, I told Mike this, okay, and, and Mike helped in this one time, and, and I, will, I will say this to you. 
uh, I said some stuff on TV one day, and and Mike came to me and he said, um, he this said, was another network, another network, yes, <laughs> okay. another network, another network. And in the beginning, when I was maybe more outspoken, and I said some stuff, and Mike said, why do you hate us? Why, why do you hate NASCAR? Why, why, don't, why don't you like NASCAR? And I said, man, I said you got it all wrong. And he said, no, I, I just don't understand it. And I said, I love, I love NASCAR. I said, my grandfather was here from the very beginning, and he, he chose this life. And this is the life that my father followed and, and I follow. And I love everything about it. Love the fans, love the racetracks, love racing people, love the race cars. And, and I said, but, you know, as, as my grandfather came along, I said, he questioned everything that Bill France Sr. said or did. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? Why is this? Because he loved the sport and he wanted to know it. And I said, and was Junior came when Bill Junior came along, my dad did the same thing. And I said, so it's just in my DNA to question everything y'all do, <laughs> to make sure I understand why you're doing it and where you're going. Right. It's just in my DNA. I, I can't, I can't fault that. Okay, I know that I just keep bragging on our analysts and our talent here at NBC Sports, but we really, I think, do just just have a fabulous stable of people um who who bring you the analysis and opinions and coverage of 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 nascar every week on television they're they're a lot of the same people that i used to talk to when they were uh in different roles prior to tv and driving and and they were the go-to quotes that i would seek out to to write stories and one of those people was dale jarrett um we, we had a great conversation with him Again, I'm remiss in that we only had him on once. I hope that we get to have him on more often in 2017. Um, Dale Jarrett is one of the most respected drivers, uh, veterans, uh, and now an NASCAR Hall of Famer in in history of the sport. And there, there's no other way to say it. Uh, he's he's always carried himself as a consummate professional. Um, he drew a lot of respect from the media and his peers because, because of that. And uh, toward the latter stages of, of his career, he became a bit of a mentor um, for some up-and-coming stars. Elliot Sadler uh, is one who he remains very close with. Another was Dale Earnhardt Jr., and some of that grew out of his time with Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s father and the relationship he developed with him. So I talked with uh, DJ about all of that, how he became – um, that kind of person and, um, and, and what he meant and, and how he, he kind of guided Dale Jr. Um, through some difficult points in his life. So take a listen. You know, Dale Jr. has been through something in his life that no one else has ever experienced. So I didn't know how to talk to him. I wasn't trying to replace his dad. You can't do that. Wouldn't, wouldn't even try to do that. But, you know, there were, there were times that he was looking for someone to talk to. And, sure. and so it wasn't as much me talking and telling him things as much as it was just listening and, and then commenting on, on what it was there. And so uh, you know, I, I have what I think is a great relationship with him, and, and I appreciate all that he's been through and the way that he's handled being uh, the most popular figure in our sport for a long time. When we had Jimmy Johnson on the podcast it was more than three months before he won. He, he would win his record-tying seventh championship, and uh, it seems even further away now. When you, when you listen to this, uh, that actually was on a weekend. Uh, we we talked to him on Friday, and two days later, he would finish last in the race at Watkins Glen. The only time that has happened in his illustrious career. Uh, certainly things looked pretty bleak at that point for Jimmy Johnson and Hendrick Motorsports. It didn't seem like they were going to have the speed for him 
to be able to challenge for a championship. Uh, of course, that, that turned around on a dime within a few weeks of this conversation. But one of the things we talked about um, during the, this wide-ranging talk, which which also went into his personal life and, and the Drivers' Council, and Jimmy gave some some great details on that, had some interesting stories. He also just talked about how this, to this point, the 2016 season had been the toughest season of his career in NASCAR's Premier Series, which... Uh, might seem surprising now in retrospect, given he given that he won the championship, but that's where he was at this point uh, in mid-August when we talked to him at Watkins Glen. I'd say 05, um, 12, and this year are all in a very similar category for me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're dealing with our frustrations much better this year than we did in 05 and 12, and just, I guess, older and more experienced, and you know the dynamic and the way frustration builds between Chad and myself and understanding where it's coming from. And yeah. it's really not personal, although it's n- never fun and it's easy to take it personally. Um, this time I, I, I'm in a better place. Not that it's easy, not that he and I still don't snap at one another, right? but it, it's still very, very similar. Maybe not the worst, but it, you know, if I look at tough years, I pull, I'll pull those three aside and, huh. and say that that's that. Um, from the organization standpoint, I would definitely say since I've been at Hendrick, this is the toughest year and the most that we've had to weather. Yeah. Um, you know, all the points you mentioned then do include Jeff retiring, which is, you know, hard for any company. Um, you know, we we're definitely trying to close the gap and there's a lot going on behind the scenes. Okay. We're going to pause for a minute so that I can share some news that I'm extremely enthused about. This podcast has the support of blue apron, which I'm excited about not just because they're supporting the podcast and I've I've got a deal to tell you about here in a minute, which so hang on for that. It's also because I'm a Blue Apron customer and have been so for more than a year with my lovely wife, Jody Valade, who I brought in here to to talk about Blue Apron a little bit as well. We just ordered uh, a selection of meals for for this week, uh, spaghetti squash marinara, potato and artichoke quiches, roasted uh, cauliflower pitas. Uh, we're looking forward to this, aren't we? Yes, it looks delicious. Um, I don't want people to think that I just cook because I'm the woman, but <laughs> I do a lot of the cooking around the house, and Blue Apron has actually made it very easy because uh, they deliver the food right to us, and they deliver like the specific portions that we need for two people, so I don't have to have like an entire bunch of basil when I just need two leaves. Um, yeah, I really like it. They give us uh, fresh, high-quality ingredients, uh, and that makes a real difference. Important to know where your food comes from, and that's certainly the case with uh, the food that arrives with Blue Apron. We've had a lot of success in in cooking these meals, and I'm always pleased by how they taste. I'm always amazed, Jody, by uh, the, the fact that you know, we're, we're, as you mentioned, we're not we're, we're both on the run. You're, you're, neither of us are really stayed home. We're both busy journalists, so right. we we need to have these meals ready to go and just ready to be prepared. And and you've found because I have no culinary skills whatsoever, <laughs> you've found that they're easy to make. Yeah, I don't have a lot of skills either, but they give you step by step instructions on how to prepare everything. So it's really very easy. All right. And so here's the reason you should check this out. Here's the deal. Uh, Check out this week's menu and you will get your first three meals free with free shipping. I can't tell you how good a deal this is by going to blueapron.com slash car. Very important. Blueapron.com slash car. That's what you need to type in to get this deal. Three uh, first three meals free with free shipping. Uh, You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. Again, it's blueapron.com slash car. Uh, that's the NASCAR on NBC podcast deal. 
Uh, Blue Apron, it's a better way to cook. Again, blueapron.com slash car. I've always said that Tony Stewart is one of the most engaging interviews in auto racing if you catch him at the right time. Uh, He can be one of the most surly interviews you're ever going to have if you catch him at the wrong time, which is, as, as some around him will tell you, whenever he's within 200 feet of his race car. So thankfully, at the time we got him as a guest on the NASCAR NBC podcast, he was near race cars, but it was at the NASCAR Hall of Fame. It was part of a media day. He was in a very relaxed mood. He was he was very introspective. I wished we would have had another half hour. I think he would have he would have gone another half hour if we if we would have had the time. Of course, his schedule is very busy. I was I was happy to even get this amount of time with him. And uh, I think one of the most interesting answers, wide ranging discussion, we talked about his his home life and and you know what's next for him. We'll be getting details on that soon in terms of what his racing schedule is going to look like in 2017. But I thought one of the most interesting answers was about how he had come to some resolution about how retirement was going to feel. Uh, We did this episode not long after he had won at Sonoma, even though he had said that same weekend that he was was leaving NASCAR because he wasn't happy doing it anymore. He still had fun during his last season so he talked about kind of the dichotomy there about how he he could maybe not be having as much fun in nascar but still had fun his last season and how some veterans don perdome the drag racing legend and ray evernham um of course all-time legendary crew chief um, nbcsn analyst how they had eased his mind about what retirement would be like it was encouraging because you know you you talk to ray and you talk to don i mean and it was fun because i really didn't don't know Don that well and, and, and still don't, but I know him a lot better now since January. Even. <laughs> um, yes, but it's, you know, cause we're all kind of in the same boat. I mean, you know, you race hard and you race at that level and that, that competition, I mean, you thrive off of that, but you kind of get to a point to where, you know, it, it goes from being something productive to something that isn't productive anymore necessarily. And, uh, you know, it was kind of fun to talk to him. I, I guess I think Perdome's probably been the one guy that's probably put me at ease about retiring more than anybody. And he goes, he told me, he goes, it's, it'll probably be hard for a couple of years. But he goes, then when you finally come to terms with how it's all changing, you know, you, you're going to relax and you're going to, you're going to have fun. And mm-hmm. he goes, you're going to have, you're going to go to the track and you're still going to be competitive at the track with your teams. But it's going to it's going to be the same, but it's going to be different. You know, one of the great things about the NASCAR NBC podcast, from my perspective, has been that it's not just about having an avenue for people to listen to these conversations and and have that content it's it's also about being able to to make some news off of of what's being said and and have uh associated post cross promoting on our website nbcsports.com/nascar and the conversation with it did we did with Kyle Larson was was a great example of this um he was very very open and honest about how he had been approached by other teams in NASCAR, but they had all wanted money from him, as he put it. They, you know, we'd love to do something with you, but we need a half million dollars if you want to drive for us. The only team um, that said, hey, how do we just sign you up? You don't have to bring any money. Uh, that that approached him like that was, was Chip Ganassi Racing. And um, that's pretty much why Kyle Larson chose that team and why he's remained loyal to that team. So... Um, I, we did a story on that and, uh, that post got great traffic. It got some pickup and, um, I certainly appreciate 
um, Kyle's candor in, in telling us this story, which, which was uh, right after he broke through for his first win in the Cup Series at Michigan. Every single one of them was like, oh, yeah, we'd love to do something with you, but we need a you know, half million dollars. And I'm, you know, back then I, you know, I earned all my rides. I didn't bring money to any ride. And, um, you know, Chip, we came and met Chip. Uh, you know, I, he was our last stop before I flew back probably to Indiana or whatever. And, and so we came over here. We we're just going to stop by and say hi. And, um, you know, we went upstairs and, uh, you know, if anybody knows Chip, you know, all of his conversations, at least with me and, and most people are, are really short. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, within like the first probably minute of us talking to him, he's like, oh, yeah, let's, so, uh, you know, how do we, how do we, how do we sign you up? And, and uh, <laughs> so I was like, well, this is awesome. Uh, you know, he's the only guy that didn't mention a thing about any money. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, you know, uh, you know, definitely got to be loyal to him for giving giving me a shot and, and taking a, a big chance uh, on me. Loved getting the chance to get to know some people better through the course of doing uh, these podcasts, and uh, perhaps no one more so than my colleague Rutledge Wood, who I'd, I'd had conversations with him before. I'd had a few long sit-downs with him, but um, not quite to the degree that, that we explored um, his history and his personality. Um, this was a really fun episode I did with him and the, the best story, the funniest story probably on the podcast, uh, from 2016 belongs to Rutledge Wood. It's about the King Richard Petty and we'll just let you hear it. Every story about your friends and their dads, when you realize that it still works with someone <laughs> as, as just, you know, real life and, and gigantic as he is. Turns out it's just Kyle's dad. <laughs> got funny shit. Like one day he was rooting around the house and Kyle heard him went downstairs and like, what are you looking for? He's like, we're out of breakfast cookies. <laughs> what? Yeah, we don't have any breakfast cookies. They were out in Wyoming. Kyle's like, well, what What are you talking about? He realized after like five minutes of discussion, the king was talking about Twinkies, which he refers to as breakfast, breakfast cookies. cookies. So Kyle went to the gas station and like bought every Twinkie they had <laughs> 20 minutes away and came back and the king was all right. But for that five minutes, he was freaking out, opening every pantry, slamming doors. Where's all the breakfast cookies? Okay, I have conflicted feelings about Parker Kligerman. I mean, part of me thinks uh, this kid absolutely deserves a ride. He's proven he can win in NASCAR. He's so personable. Um, he, seemed, he would seem to be a sponsor's dream. Um, from a media perspective, he was, he was a great interview, um, and I wish we could have seen more of him uh, on the track. However, he has been a fantastic addition to NBC Sports. Um, he brings a unique perspective, both in terms of his, his intelligence and his youth. And he has been a huge supporter of this podcast. And I'm really appreciative of that. He's, he's very savvy when it comes to social media. And I really appreciate the fact that Parker has gone out of his way to retweet our posts on our podcasts and, and really push the fact uh, that, that we have this out there. I know, I know that he likes that we're doing it. And um, we had Parker on a few times in 2016. I'm sure we'll have him back in 2017. Um, always has good insight. One of the best answers that he gave us, I thought, was he drove for both Kyle Busch uh, and Brad Keselowski. Um, he, he has relationships with both of them. Uh, he knows what makes both of them tick. And I thought he had a really interesting uh, point of view on why they're more similar than people might realize. 
I, I would say this. They are more similar than you would think. And I, I would go down to saying that they are very much the same person um, in terms of being a competitor. Both of them want to win more than anything. They live, breathe, eat, and consume racing and NASCAR racing. That is their sole thing in life as a sole thing that's driven them and gotten them where they are, and that is what they continually focus on. Um, but how they go about that is different. You know, what you find with Brad is that he looks at the mental side of of racing. He looks at the mental side of the sport, as I say a lot of times, and how him and uh, himself and Paul Wolf won that championship in 2012 was by outsmarting and innovate, out-innovating the 48 team. Um, Kyle Busch is more in the sense of more you know, in your face, this is what you got. This is, you know, it's very much a, um, there's not much hidden behind the scenes in terms of that he's going to put it all on the line out there and try and force his way into the win. But I think the way they conduct themselves amongst their teams, the way they conduct themselves um, as human beings, I, I just find that when I was with them, they, they reminded me a lot of each other as racers. Um, and it was just two different approaches. But at the end of the day, they were both diehard racers. Um, that really struck me as being a lot more similar than we'd think. Steve Newmark is the president of Roush Fenway Racing, but he also is or was a major player in the formation of the Race Team Alliance and the development negotiations of the charter system uh, landmark deal for NASCAR and its teams that, that made its debut last year. Um, Steve is a former practicing lawyer. He has a lot of experience in sport business, sports business, but he's also very media savvy, media friendly. Um, that's, that's much appreciated by myself and my colleagues. He always, always tries to help us out. And in this case, coming on the podcast, I mean, he really gave me a, a great window into what took place with the RTA and with the team charter negotiations. This was one of the most well-received episodes in terms of the reaction from insiders in the NASCAR industry, um, I heard a lot of from a lot of people who said that um, they they learned something from hearing this episode because Steve was so candid about what happened behind closed doors back uh, in January of 2016 and even a couple years before that uh, as the RTA was forming. So um, we'll uh, hear Steve talking about um, uh, some some of the initial bumps in the road for the RTA and um, some of the the sticking points for getting the the charter system done. We had talked to to NASCAR in advance and made sure they were aware of what's going on. Tried to alleviate any concerns, but I think it was natural because it was such a sea change from how we had operated in the past. Mm-hmm. And so I do think, quite frankly, that probably there was an, some initial trepidation for certain folks within NASCAR. And, you know, to be blunt, I think that probably the concern wasn't because you saw this whispered quite in the press. I mean, the press were were writing articles that, hey, this is a precursor to the teams making huge demands on NASCAR for a reallocation of how the TV money works. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you get down to it, that's what I think the concern was. And I think probably legitimately, if I was in NASCAR shoes, that would have been a concern. Is Mm -hmm. Is this what they are aiming to do? We had on Jill Gregory shortly after she was named the new chief marketing officer for NASCAR, but Jill is not someone who's new to, to those of us in the NASCAR industry who have been around for a while. Uh, she has been around for a while, both working for NASCAR and, and prior to that, um, working at, at Sprint Nextel and helping out with, with that title sponsorship. She's extremely savvy when it comes to marketing and business and um I, this was a, a great conversation it was it was great getting to learn more about her and, and delve into her background 
and talk about the challenges that NASCAR faces in trying to market, particularly to a younger demographic with a new crop of younger stars um, moving upward. And how do you market those guys before they've had success? Uh, And Jill had a really interesting answer on that. It's hard because I was actually having a a conversation with a very successful Sprint Cup driver um, just like a week or two ago. And he's like, you need these guys to win. I'm like, I know. Can you pull over and let them win? Help somebody out. Um, But it is, it's a balance because on, you know, in every measure that we look at and every fan data, winning on the track is crucial. Um, And that's, that's the number one thing that's going to make people follow. Um, You know, across demos, um, you know, Hispanic, everybody wants to see a winner and then you can build on that but you also have to do that pre-work you know we've got a a competitive sport landscape right now where it's you know thousands of a second are you know um are the margin of victory in some of these races or you look at the qualifying times um you know on a friday or or a saturday and you know it's more competitive than it's ever been uh having the man behind nascar chasm uh, also known as Dave from Indianapolis, was not my idea. Uh, all credit goes to some people at NASCAR who pitched this to me, and I'm so glad that they did. Uh, this was a really fun conversation, and perhaps nothing was more humorous than learning about what things are like for Dave when he goes to the track uh, and meets some of the drivers and personalities that he lampoons on a regular basis through his hilarious Twitter account and on NASCAR.com, and uh, here's Dave's take on that. Do we have a bleep button so I could tell my favorite story? <laughs> yeah. Do we, we can, have one? We can bleep stuff out. Yeah. Okay, go good, good. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, usually you get, you know, a, a nice warm handshake, you know, even if they don't care who you are or, you know, know you're an idiot. Um, but uh, I'd say my, my, my favorite one ever uh, is actually, it was IndyCar driver uh, Will Power. Yes. Um, I had a, uh, had, had a very funny um, response. Uh, we were, I was out there for, um, this was well before I was working for NASCAR Digital Media. We were out there for, uh, the, um, a championship banquet and Will won the championship that year. So, uh, we uh, went to the banquet and the after parties there and my friend's like, Hey, come meet Will. And, um, so we go into the VIP section and Will's there and, you know, Will's very nice. He's funny as heck. And, um, you know, my friend walks up, he's like, you know, Hey, Will, I'd like you to introduce you to our guest, Dave, and, you know, was like, you know, oh, hi, pleasure to meet you. How are you? <laughs> you know, and then, you know, it's kind of a loud, loud um, event. And um, my friend um, kind of, so I see him lean into Will's ear and whisper something. And Will turns and gives me this wide-eyed look and says, <laughs> get drilly. <laughs> and I, I was like, oh, geez. Oh, wow. 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 I started covering NASCAR full-time in the 2002 season which also happened to be the season in which Bill Elliott won the Brickyard 400. And he celebrated with uh, his very, very young son, Chase Elliott, who I believe was six years old at the time. Uh, and there are some, some famous photos of, of Chase with his dad in Victory Lane after that race. So having Chase Elliott on the podcast and doing this discussion was a little bit surreal. Uh, it's been a little bit surreal since Chase Elliott has become uh, a well-known driver to, to cover him. I can remember when I worked at the Richmond newspaper in 1998, there's a famous photo of, of Bill, Elliott, Bill Elliott having won the pole at that track. 
and holding a, I believe, two- or three-year-old Chase Elliott in his arms while celebrating that pole position. So it was a real, little surreal when I talked to Chase Elliott for the first time three years ago. Uh, it was a little bit surreal to, to do this uh, podcast with him, but he, he had some really good insight both into his flying career, his racing career, and what it was like um, celebrating that Brickyard 400 win with his dad in 2002. I didn't kiss the bricks. You didn't. I, okay. I, I wouldn't do it. Nope. I uh, <laughs> didn't I, want to jinx it. In I case would not. Later. I would not kiss the bricks. I don't know why that was, but um, all the pictures of them kissing the bricks, I was standing in the background. I, I didn't want anything to do with that. I don't remember why or what my reasoning was, but um, I didn't want in on that, so I didn't do okay. it. Okay. Well, it's probably not the reasoning of a six-year-old, but I would think if you knew you were going to be driving there later <laughs> with the potential of winning, you probably wouldn't want to kiss it before you actually well, entered as, as a winning driver. At that driver. point, uh, <laughs> I definitely had no idea I'd be racing there at this yeah. point. So it was, uh, but regardless, at least I'm in the, at least cool to be in the picture, uh, not kissing the bricks, but but still in the picture. So that's, that's good enough for me. What, what was it like for you, Chase? Um, you know, we hear so many stories about NASCAR being generational and, and Kyle Petty on NBC tells stories all the time about growing up in the infield with the, with the, the kids of other drivers. Was, was it like that for you? Were you at the track pretty much every week during those formative years or? Yeah. I mean, it, more race tracks than others. I mean, I definitely recall going to different places at different times, you know, the, the West Coast races, no, never went to a lot of West Coast races. Obviously, remember spending a lot of time at Daytona, Atlanta, um, Charlotte, for sure. You know, most of your races that are in the southeast that were fairly close, I do remember going to a good bit. Um, remember going to Pocono for some reason. That was a place I feel like I, I went to a lot. I think a lot of it was just kind of dependent upon how school fell, mm-hmm. um, whether it was a school weekend, obviously, some of your summer tracks I probably remember going to more than more than not just because you're out of school and, and there were times where I could go and, and not get in trouble for being gone. So um, <laughs> that, that was the biggest thing. But, you know, for me, uh, I, I had a good time with it. I, I definitely remember some racetracks more than others, but uh, still still look back and happy I got a chance to, to go to those. Had a lot of support for the podcast last year from a lot of different NASCAR teams, but Team Penske really went above and beyond and, and showed a really big interest in, in this project from the beginning, from Joey Logano being our first driver guest uh, in the third episode, and Jonathan Gibson, uh, VP of Marketing for Team Penske, helped arrange uh, a phone interview with Roger Penske from the Indianapolis Motor Speed while, Speedway while he was getting ready for the 100th Indy 500. Um, not long after that Logano podcast, uh, Jonathan set this up, which I was hugely appreciative of, of him for, for doing that. Um, talked about a lot of things with Roger, of course, um, very gracious with his time. And uh, one of the things that's always fascinating me about Roger Penske is that, of course, he is synonymous with successful team ownership in auto racing. I mean, he very well might go down in history as the, as the greatest car owner of, of all time, given what he's done across so many different disciplines. But he could have been a driver uh, if things might have broken differently. Uh, if he might have come around a little bit later in life, he's joked about, he, he might have ended up on the driver's side instead of the team owner's side. So um, it's, I, I, it's, it's always fascinated me that's, that side of, of his, his history. And so we talked a little bit about his driving career during uh, our, our conversation, including his win in NASCAR. I was going back through the records, Roger, and did you win a NASCAR race in 1963? Do, do I have that correct? Yeah, I won uh, the race at Riverside. Uh, 
uh, with a Pontiac. Uh, I drove for Ray Nichols, uh, Parnelli Jones, Gurney, all those guys ran that race. I almost won the race uh, a couple of week, a couple of months earlier at the Indianapolis Raceway Park. Uh, was leading with about 10 laps to go and lost the rear end and then went out and won the race at Riverside. And I remember, uh, uh, you know, it was a NASCAR race, and when I came back, they didn't want to let me in the speedway because I had driven a NASCAR car. <laughs> Thanks to all of the guests we had in the first season of the NASCAR and NBC podcast, and as always, much gratitude to all of the media reps who helped coordinate these conversations. And thanks again to producer Tess Quinlan for fearlessly assembling all of these sound bites. We appreciate her diligence, as always. Thanks again for listening, and as noted, I'm working on booking guests for this coming year, so if you've got ideas, uh, suggestions, send them to me on Twitter, at Nate Ryan is my account name, and we'll be back soon with another edition of the NASCAR NBC podcast. We'll talk to you then. I'm Steve Letarte, STP auto expert and former crew chief. I know what it takes to keep engines performing at their best. STP's latest breakthrough additive, STP Ultra 5-in-1 plus Fuel System Cleaner plus Fuel Stabilizer delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline and helps keep fuel fresh during storage. For over 60 years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products to help engines run better, longer. One bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... The charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. (laughs) No, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed.